But we are looking, we have been looking at um, uh, the letter to the Hebrews for some time now, since um, last September. And we've got to Hebrews chapter 11. We started to look at it last week. Let me read the passage we looked at last week and then on to verse 31. Hebrews chapter 11. Do have it in front of you if you can. Excuse me. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel speaks even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive, later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, many descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore came. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses himself, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ 
as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched round them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, and so on. Let's pray. I have me, Father, this, as these stories are being alluded to, we sense a, a richness and a depth and a breadth and, um, and the complexity to what uh, is being described. We who have read your, uh, the Old Testament, Lord, know that captures uh, many, many different stories and twists and turns. But we pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to capture the heart of what our author wants to say to us. We pray that you would speak to us, um, not just through what I say, but by the power of your spirits deep into our hearts. We pray that you'd open our eyes to see things perhaps that we've seen before, but now we see them afresh in bright light, or perhaps things we've never seen. Lord, we bow before you and we say we want to hear from you. Please answer our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I started our journey through Hebrews 11 uh, last week. And I said, as I introduced it, that probably the most important thing that we need as Christians is courage. Remember C.S. Lewis said, uh, speaking of that, virtues or commitments, he said, that aren't under, underpinned with, with courage are not virtues or commitments at all. They're just um, uh, a way of life and commitments that we make so long as it's not too difficult. As he put it, Pilate was merciful until it became risky. Now, we need courage if we are to uh, follow God and follow his word in this world. We need courage fundamentally to trust God. Last week, again, we looked at the nature of faith. It's not something weird and peculiar. It's something that every single human being does because we have to live and trusting ourselves to things that we at this moment can't see, things that have not yet happened. That happens to, to everybody. Uh, the distinctive thing about Christians is that we choose to trust the God whom we cannot see, who makes promises about the future that has not yet happened. 
And if you know anything about the history of uh, the Western world in the last two or three hundred years, you will know that uh, we have been, in many ways, self-consciously wanting to uh, do away with that. Because there is a, uh, an intrinsic surrendering of our control if we do that. And human beings, as human beings, we want to be in control. And in the Western world in particular, we have sought to, to take control, take, take, to, to, to assert political and social control, to, to assert economic control with the theories of capitalism and indeed socialism are both efforts to try to control the uh, economic sphere, particularly and fundamentally to, to get control of nature from farming to weather forecasting to technology to especially medicine. We are, we are wanting to, to grasp hold of this difficult, unpredictable world that we live in and get a grip on it and get control over it. And um, we have been quite successful in various uh, uh, respects which has emboldened us to think that we are completely the masters of our fate. You know, the, um, the poem Invictus, which has been very popular now for probably the last decade at least, which ends, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is us. Of course, control is a grand illusion. I mean, to be sure, there has been immense uh, progress, but it was uh, three and a half thousand years ago that Moses in Psalm 90 said that uh, people's lifespan is about 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. And maybe we've added 10 years to that in three and a half thousand years but not much. And of course, every individual person's journey is a journey from vulnerability, weakness and helplessness to vulnerability and weakness and helplessness. In the middle of it, there may be a period of, of grasping hold and trying to establish ourselves uh, um, uh, physically and financially and in reputation and all of those kinds of things, but they dissolve all too quickly. And I think right now in our, in our cultural moment, there is an awareness of that. You know, the pandemic really highlighted our vulnerability. The war in Ukraine has reinforced that. The crisis in the, in the health service, the, the excess death rate, the, the fact that you will not get an ambulance coming to you in a timely manner if you are in a life-threatening situation and, uh, and item after item after item is reminding us that we're much less in control of our fate than we think. From beginning to end of the Bible, 
The Bible has always said that it is foolish and facile for any human being to think that they are in control of their destiny. They may sustain that for a few decades, but it will not last. We have never been, nor never will be, the master of our fate, the captain of our soul. And those who proclaim it are like that orchestra on the Titanic that played as the ship went down. You can admire their, their valiant courage, but in the end it makes the tragedy even deeper. No, the Bible has always said that alongside that, that, that illusion of control that human beings grasp for and which, which runs through their fingers, there is actually a, a true place that we can put our trust, which involves surrendering that personal control. but finding a security which is far, far more profound. That's what the Bible is talking about again and again when it uses the word faith. It is about trusting the God of the universe. And that's the primary thing that Hebrews 11 is talking about as it, as it did that whistle-stop tour through person after person in the, in the Old Testament. It was reminding us that from beginning to end, the call of the Bible, which has been heeded by person after person after person, is to trust the God of the Bible, to have faith. So I want to try and uh, just in the time that we've got and... Um, we won't be able to, um, just as uh, Hebrews 11 feels like he's running out of time, we are not going to be able to cover it all. But I want to just to follow some of that, that whistle-stop tour this week, and then Tom's going to continue uh, next week. First of all, I want, to, I want to explore with you what those characters believed, what they were called to believe. First, there is Noah. In the list, Noah believed there is judgment. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world, became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. You probably know the story. Noah is warned the whole world is going to be flooded. He builds this great boat, this ark, to save his family, and because he was an ecologist, to save all animals, uh, who went in two by two as well, if you know the story. The flood comes, his family and the animals are saved. The big message of Noah is that there is a judgment. In our cultural moment, that, that is massive good news. I think people, people know it and want it. They want politicians to be brought to judgment. They want colonialists of another era or to be brought to judgment or police or, or priests or, or leaders in general. It feels like high time. Per, pe people, person after person, faced judgment. 
The message of Noah, though, is a little bit disconcerting. Because it says everyone will be judged. The whole earth will be flooded. And Noah needs to prepare for that himself. He needs to do something about it. Something that actually to the world around him looked completely ridiculous. Build a great big boat on dry land. But when the time came, he was saved. First thing that is being picked up. Noah had to trust and act on the warning of God that there was judgment. Abraham, there is a home. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Um, before God spoke to him, Abraham had, been, had had a perfectly good home in a place called Haran. But God said that wasn't to be his true home. There was a better one. And so Abraham set out to find it. There's a bit more to this story as we will um, um, uh, see. But uh, let's just leave that hanging there. Abraham had to relinquish what he what was his secure family home and set out towards a foreign country. Or Sarah, Abraham's wife. There is hope for humanity. Verse 11, by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. If you know the story, you know it's complicated, not least because Sarah laughs, first of all, at the idea that she, as a postmenopausal woman, might, uh, might give birth. The significance of it is also not just that she wants a child, though that there is that personal element to it. The significance of it is that Abraham and Sarah had been promised that they would have a child, and indeed this child would be the first of a, of a line of descendants would, which would ultimately become as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So when she is childless, God's promise to humanity is hanging by a thread. But she is told she should trust the God who gives life, the God who keeps his promises. And indeed, it came to pass. She gives birth to Isaac, and on goes the story. Noah, there is judgment. Abraham, there is a home beyond what we see. Sarah, there is hope for, for, for humanity beyond what she could see. Abraham, again, there is resurrection. 
Look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when, test, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God would, could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This is an extremely disconcerting and troubling story. In the Old Testament, God, Abraham is told by God to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac, who's been, who's the child of the promise. And Abraham sets out to do it. God does stop it happening just in time. But we are left hanging. What, what on earth is God doing commanding such a thing? What is, what on earth is Abraham doing? Obeying. And here it is. Here's the explanation. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. In other words, God is pressing him in this direction and Abraham's faith has got to a point where he is able to trust God beyond death. He is able to trust that God is well able to raise the dead. And he is ready to trust him with his life and the life of his son. It's still a troubling story. It's intended to be. It's meant to be. But it's not a story about divine cruelty. It's a story about a man being brought to the point that every human being needs to get to. Will I trust God with my death? Abraham was prepared to. And then there is Moses. There is abundant blessing learns Moses, verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. If you've watched Disney's Prince of Egypt, you know the story. Moses was adopted into Pharaoh's family. He wasn't quite the heir of all the treasures of Egypt, but he was a pretty good spare and he left it all behind. Not for the life of a comfortable millionaire in California, actually for poverty, homelessness, vulnerability and disgrace. Because that was better value. Because he knew his previous pleasures were fleeting. Because the reward he was heading to was worth it. Worth every bit of disgrace that he endured in the meantime. Notice the bold way in which our author describes it as disgrace for the sake of Christ. Of course, it was long before Jesus had come along. And we don't need to assume that Moses 
Moses you know, had a full orbed personal vision of Jesus. Rather, rather, Moses, Moses' faith is all of a piece with ours. The, the faith that Moses exercised was the faith that every Christian is called to exercise, which is ultimately faith to embrace disgrace for the sake of Christ. Because what we are offered is far, far better. There, Moses knew there is abundant blessing. And then the story of the Red Sea and Jericho and Rahab. There is rescue. Verse 29, by faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on the dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched round them for seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. The common denominator in these little stories is, is rescue, it seems to me. The Israelites, led by Moses, set out towards the Red Sea and it looked like they were completely lost. There was the sea in front of them and the great army of Egypt behind them. They were stuffed. And then the Red Sea parted. Or the Israelites arrive in, in, uh, in the promised land and it is held very securely by, uh, um, by the tribes, especially focused around the city of Jericho, a great walled city, which they're never going to be able to conquer. It's useless. They're never going to be able to live securely in the promised land, except that then the walls fall down. Or the pagan prostitute Rahab chooses to rebel against the established powers of her world to harbour a couple of Israelite spies because she senses that they belong to the God whom she can trust. And as it transpires, in fact, she is saved when others are destroyed. And as he says, he has not got time to talk of uh, many, many other stories. But here is the building picture that God's people are being taught. Noah, there is judgment and you need to trust it in the future. Abraham, there is a home and you need to set out from what is secure towards that home. Sarah, there is hope for humanity and you need to trust that you will become a mother. Uh, um, Abraham, there is resurrection and you need to trust that God can keep his people even beyond death. Moses, there is abundant blessing and embrace the, 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 the disgrace for the sake of that blessing. Israel, there is rescue. You will learn that again and again and again. Life can look, it can look impossible for God to keep his promises. But then he does. As we read these stories, you see, we are supposed to slowly have our faith shaped. We haven't got to the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the climax of the story yet. That will be found in Jesus. But these stories are starting to shape us. And they were starting to shape Israel. Israel was starting to dare 
to believe that perhaps they could transfer their confidence that they could control circumstances to just trusting in God whom they could not see and a future they could not see but a God who had spoken words of promise. And as they trusted, think through what they did. Noah built an ark. Imagine the mockery. Massive thing it was, enormous uh, in size, not built on any waterway, just standing there on the land. Imagine the people wandering, wandering past. What an idiot you are, Noah. It's not going to be any judgment. We're fine. There's not going to be a flood. Till there was. Abraham obeyed and went. Imagine the consternation. Haran is a wealthy place. He is a wealthy man. He has a house, security, and lots and lots of things. And though he can take some of his possessions with him, he has to live in tents. What an idiot. Giving up on your safe career, Abraham. Giving up on your guaranteed leafy suburban house. Abraham, giving up on that pension pot that you know a life of a secure career will earn you. Giving up on all the guaranteed holidays and perks. Imagine the consternation. Or Sarah. What did she have to do? Well, in many ways, she just had to get on with life. She and Abraham need to make sure that they had sex every so often because it wasn't promised without that. But apart from that, she could just cheer up and trust God. Imagine the derision. thing she's got this sort of permanent smile fixed on her face and we all know there's no hope for her she's living in a deluded world they make her happy but it's all a delusion so it's not Abraham risked everything imagine the indignation it's all right for you to follow your own little funny um, ideas Abraham but sacrificing your family Moses imagine the bewilderment 
What not to like about your current life, Moses? All the wealth you can have, lots of slaves around to do, to do stuff. We're even building those great big pyramids, which will be seen for thousands of years to come. That's how great we are, Moses. And you're, you're heading off into the wilderness with a ragtag of useless people. Israelites at the Red Sea and Jericho and Rahab, they all had to act. They all had to do something. They all had to take risks. They all had to face the fact that it looked pretty stupid to the world. Because that's the nature of what it means to follow a future that we're promised that we can't see. A God who says he is there, but he is not visible. Most of the world will always be embracing this constant, perpetual effort to keep control ourselves and will mock those who've decided it's useless and they will trust the living God but you see in generation after generation after generation those of faith are proved right Look in these stories, for instance, about what they saw, what they did actually see. Because again and again, at this part of Hebrews 11, Tom's going to move on to um, uh, uh, some even more challenging stuff at the end of Hebrews 11. But at this part of Hebrews 11, the main thing he's pointed out is that they did actually see a degree of God's, the fulfillment of God's promises. Noah did see a flood. Abraham and Sarah did find a new home and did have a son. Moses did experience uh, uh, deliverance. God, when God makes his promises, he keeps them. And we are meant to see again and again and again God doing that in um, his dealings with his people. But there are elements of the promise that they never saw. Abraham, for instance, he left his secure home. And although he lived in the promised land and he began to enjoy a certain measure of, 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 of wealth and so on in the promised land, he lived, as we are told, in tents as a foreigner and stranger, not fully at home. And then we see verse 14 of Hebrews 11. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. If living in tents wasn't good enough, you know, that was a failure of God's promise. Well, you know, Abraham could have gone back any time he liked. But instead, 
Abraham and everyone like him, were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. For in other other words, they get a taste of the fulfillment of the promises of God. But it is just like the sort of first bit of the harvest, not the fullness, the the down payment, but not the the final redemption. It, 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 it It is a taste, but it is not the full thing. And they know it. Abraham is content to live as a foreigner and a stranger and to describe himself as that because his hope lies beyond his life to where he will finally be at home. Moses is content to be delivered from all the wealth of Egypt, but ultimately not to the promised land, only into the wilderness and the borders of the promised land. Because in the end, he's content to trust God beyond his own life. And Christians are called to be those who enjoy a first taste Enjoy the first fruits. Enjoy the beginnings of God's fulfillment of his promises to us. But ultimately we are longing for something that will only be fully realized after our death. When God creates a new heaven and a new earth. And all of his promises and his warnings and, and, and uh, his reward that Moses was looking forward to is finally completed in a world that is unbrokenly good. It is not that there is no evidence for that we have the evidence of those who received promises and God fulfilled them within their lifetime or in the case of Abraham and Sarah uh, in subsequent history as since then the people of faith have become almost as innumerable as the stars in the sky and the sand on on the seashore we have as well sitting right at the center of the Christian story The story of Jesus, who is the ultimate culmination of all of the stories that went before. Jesus comes warning of judgment, not a flood. We are promised at the end of the story of Noah that will never happen again, mainly because it didn't ultimately work. But a final perfect judgment in which every individual stands face to face before the living God and must give an account for their life. Jesus came and assured us of a home, not just in the promised land of Canaan, but an eternal home 
in his new heaven and new earth. Jesus came and promised that there was, there was a, a, a fulfillment of the promise of people to be innumerable as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore that Sarah just longed for. But now he says he has come with all authority in heaven and earth to bring people from every tribe and nation into a place where they have faith in him. Jesus promised that there was resurrection life that Abraham could only long for as he faced the death of his son. But now God allows his one and only son to die and raises him from the dead. Jesus says there is a deliverance and a reward and a blessing that Moses only saw from far off. But now all those who put their trust in him will be saved. And there is abundant evidence for Jesus. There is more evidence for the reality of Jesus than there is for any ancient Roman emperor. Of his uh, evidence of his teaching, evidence of his life, evidence of his death, evidence even of his resurrection. It is extraordinary. No one is denying that, but that's the point. It is the fulfillment of everything that the Bible has pointed to up to that moment. And now everyone since is called, is called explicitly and with much greater clarity to follow Moses. To put our faith in Christ. The fullness, you see, of the Bible's message is our escape from judgment, our eternal heavenly home, our enjoyment of it being part of that innumerable number, our reward, which is greater than all the rewards of this world, our salvation. So what I want to say to you this, this morning more than anything else is will you relinquish that foolish temporary, illusory belief that you are in control. Will you entrust yourself to Jesus? There will be things to do, places to go, decisions to make, and they will all be shaped by whether you trust this world and yourself or whether you will follow the abundant evidence that we can trust God. Let me mention a couple of people who 
stand as beacons of that. William Carey um, grew up not far from here, um, became the father of modern missions. He was a he had a modest but secure living as a cobbler, but he decided that he had to set out to another country, to India, like Abraham. He became not only one of the most influential um, Christians in the history of India, if not the most influential, but actually one of the most influential men in the history of India as he led reforms and he, uh, he led education and brought the gospel. John Wesley had a comfortable um, background. He went to Charterhouse School and then Christ Church here in uh, Oxford. Then he was converted. And he knew it could never be the same. 1744, he preached preached a few times in the university, but this was the last time because he felt that he must sharply criticise the state of the spiritual state of the university. He wrote in his diary afterwards, I preached, I suppose, the last time at St. Mary's. Be it so, I have fully delivered my own soul. And he was one of the most hated and reviled men of the late 18th century. But even secular historians said he saved England. And he sparked the revival which, of which we are inheritors ourselves. And on it goes. The cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews 11 describes it, is still growing. The question is, what is our place in that story? You know, Judy and I have experienced a little bit of this. Um, It may not seem obvious to you, but uh, um, we both had secure jobs and uh, could have had a very nice and comfortable life with me as a vet and uh, Judy as a midwife. And when we set out to come to Oxford, it was extremely perilous. But the Lord has been amazingly good. Both in, actually in our family, all our children are believing, but we have a spiritual family as well. That is just a pleasure and a delight to be part of. The Lord's even given us a reasonably secure home, though Judy's worried it'll fall down all the time. But it wasn't without its cost. The 20th century thinker and journalist um, Malcolm Muggeridge was an inveterate seeker after truth. And uh, relatively late in life, he became a Christian. At the end of his life, he wrote this. Let me finish with his words. 
I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets, that's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue, that's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions, that's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote is sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time, that's fulfilment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply those tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draught of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty. Irrespective of who or what they are. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that there are so many forces encouraging us to trust ourselves and trust all the modern things of life that promise to keep us secure and satisfy us. We confess they turn our hearts. And so we ask, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would turn our hearts to you. For those of us who have followed you for many years, Lord, we so easily wander. Bring us back. For those of us who are considering following you, Lord. Give us the courage to trust you. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.